What would you do if you could not send your child out into the street without worrying about him being killed? What would you do if you saw that kind of ungodly demonic action against your son? How would you respond? You have to face the fact that there is a history here that has bred a culture that has bred a mindset. And so let's flip the script. What would you do if it was your son or your brother and your friend? Well, maybe you don't have an answer for that, but you ought to deal with that because there's never going to be any change until you deal with that. Bishop Ken Ulmer uh, is is heads the Faithful Central Bible Church in South Los Angeles, has done so, if I did my research right, for close on to 40 years. Uh, and he right. also, all right, also uh, uh, is, uh, this is also the sister church, as we say, of the temple that, that I am a member of at Wilshire Boulevard Temple. And our churches and temple work, work together to do real, real good work, which I have witnessed in person, on video, and in many ways. So here's the quick backstory. Uh, Bishop Ulmer and I sat in his tabernacle uh, where his uh, congregation uh, gathers uh, or was gathering, uh, and we talked before about uh, his background and all the rest, uh, and I felt the need, given the events of the past few months, uh, to... to uh, impose on Bishop Ulmer again uh, for his perspective on, on the world today. So, uh, Bishop, thank you uh, once again for, for rejoining us. Thank you. It's good to see you again, and uh, things have changed quite a bit since we last talked. Yes, yes. Let me, let me start on one that might seem like a boring number, uh, but the number that I wrote at the top of my notes here is 25%. Uh, and 25% uh, that I'll have you comment on is the regulation imposed by uh, the city of Los Angeles, the county of Los Angeles, Mayor Garcetti, et cetera, uh, as a limitation uh, for the size of a, a, a congregational gathering. Uh, facing that restric restriction uh, in, the, in the place that you have helped build, which I have been uh, personally witness to with thousands of people gathering on a Sunday. What is the world of the congregation like now versus what it was, uh, as they say, pre-COVID? Well, first of all, unless they've changed the rule, which they change every day. Yes. Unless they've changed the rule, uh, the 25% is not really um, the key number. Because the, the, the original, uh, unless it has changed, the original guideline was 25% or 100, whichever right, it was. Right. That's the other part of the rule. That's correct, right. Bishop. Right. And, and, and actually, the 25% is significant for many, many, many churches in Los Angeles. I mean, the average church in America is only about 100 people anyway. So, 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 so to say 20, uh, 100 people is your cap, that's a significant number for many churches. I think when you get to the larger churches, I, I, we're, I, we're, we're probably a large church. I wouldn't call us a mega church. I, I know some real megas. I, I wouldn't say we're a mega, but we're a large church. And so the, uh, the operative guideline, the, the last one that we received was 
or 100 people, whichever is less. And so, and so uh, our place seats about, oh, about 1,700. And so a, a quarter of that would be about little, just over 400. But uh, I'll, we'll have to double check if they've now extended it to that actual 25%, which would be 400. Because uh, we've pretty much determined that we are not going to return. We are not going to return uh, until the uh, LA Unified School District opens. In other words, we're coordinating with that particular institution and saying, and, and really we've, we have uh, surveyed many of our people. The people, if you can't send your child to school, you're not going to send your child to church. And the way our, our services operate, we have a separate service of, of hundreds of kids on one part of the campus and then the adults on another part of the campus. And so the option would be either to put the kids in their, in their regular place. Kids will not social, social distance. Let's get that straight. Children are not going to social distance. Uh, and if they do, it will be a horrible experience if they're having to keep, you know, stay away from Johnny and whatever. That's number one. The other option would be that the adults would bring their children into our, our, our adult worship space, which creates another problem because our services are not designed to even reach the, the 10-year-old mind. And so we've determined that we're going to coordinate with the uh, LA Unified School District. And when the schools are open, uh, we'll begin to look at our times of bringing, coming, coming back together and see what kind of guidelines they're going to be. Because again, uh, it's a major, major issue when you try to worship as a family and yes. yet you've got these kind of guidelines. Yes. Wow. So that, that jumps into just one more question around COVID. If, if, as you sit back now that we're three plus months into, into all of the, 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 the tumult, um, what would you point to, uh, as, is something that just feels like the most significant change. Is it literally the, the physical uh, presence of your congregation? What, would, what strikes you as, as your big, I don't want to say takeaway, that's such a terrible corporate term, but what really, really sticks with you through this as the biggest change? Well, I think the challenge for us, and, and, and I would think in any uh, spiritual context, uh, be it synagogue or temple or church or whatever, is that how do we not allow social distancing to become spiritual and relational distancing? In other words, how do we not allow that to imply that we cannot have relationships, we cannot remain in contact, we can't have conversations, we can't have intimate con contact with people? And so that's, I think, is the challenge of those of us who deal with the masses or deal with groups, is how do you do that uh, and yet maintain your identity? I mean, in our, in our services, uh, there, there's a particular, there's a particular, um, uh, um, we call it a flow. There's a particular atmosphere. There's a particular style of African American worship that almost demands intimacy, demands relationship, demands interaction. You know, um, and so our struggle now is how do we modify that? On the one hand, uh, in order to remain safe, to, to maintain safety, but on the other time, on the other hand, to remain identity. Because by definition, we, we interact in our services. Um, I interact with the people. The people interact with each other. Uh, turn to your neighbor, the person next to you, in front of you, behind you. And so uh, I'm not sure what that's going to look like when we have to you know, space out in, 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 a, uh, in a setting that does not allow you to have those kinds of relationships. And so uh, we're still working it out. We're work we have a, oh, I, got, I don't know, 
15, 20 page re-entry document that we're working on now, uh, which I think uh, um, insurance companies are requiring everybody to have. But short answer is a lot of this, we're going to have to make it up as we go along, man. We, 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 there, there's a passage in, in, in the book of Joshua that says we've not passed this way before. And that's where we are right now. Nobody's done this before. We don't know what it's going to look like. There'll be a lot of ex- experimentation. We're going to try some things. Some things will work. Some things won't work. And so we're kind of going into a no man's land, uh, praying every step of the way. And I bet, I bet even with the report and all the rest, do you remain? I, I almost know the answer before I say it, at least I guess. Uh, do you remain optimistic that you will be able to uh, infuse your your followers uh, with that feeling again? Uh, what's where? Where is your heart and head at now? It's going to be different. It will never, and I'm, I'm not a prophet, so I don't, I don't speak this prophetically, but but it will never be the same. I, I, our world will never be the same. And, and I, as I zoom the lens out, we, we, the, the, the phrase new normal uh, will be overused, and actually it's not going to be back to normal at all. There's going to be some major changes sociologically, uh, economically, uh, relationally, there's some major changes that we're going to, and we will make those adjustments. Don't get me wrong. We'll make those adjustments. But I think that uh, the, the degree to which we try to go back to the way it was or the way it used to be or what used to be normal will be the degree to which we're going to struggle and maybe even fail on a corporate level. Because I, I know some churches that are that are, can't wait to get back to the way it used to be, and it's not going to ever be like that anymore. You know, most of my friends, most of my colleagues uh, are doing online like like most religious or, religious uh, organizations that are, and and our viewership has gone up. I mean, our if you count viewers, which is a whole other issue, but if you count viewers, we're reaching more people now than we ever did in that building. Number one, number two, some of those people are never going to come back into brick and mortar. They have determined that we, I can worship God, I can I can I can serve God with a cup of coffee and my house shoes on. I don't have to get up, go through the traffic, get dressed, all that. And so, first of all, there's a group that are never going to come back. They're never going to come back. And I'm, and that's not a bad thing. We just have to be creative in how do we continue to minister to them. But those who are going to come, I think, again, will be challenged with this new atmosphere, a new dynamic. And it will be an adjustment. We will make that adjustment. But I think, again, the degree to which we try to go back to the way there, there, there's an old song in the African-American tradition called Let's Go Back to the Old Landmark. It's the gospel well, the degree to which we try to go back to the old landmark is going to be the degree to which we're going to miss where we can go and where we can, what, what we can become. Wow. So is that, do you feel a change within you on how you think about your work because you seem like you've come to acceptance that whether it's somebody calls it the next normal rather than just the new normal because there'll be another normal after that. Uh, do you... Do you, as Bishop Ulmer, who has done so much for so long, at you know, in your, you've it's not your first time to the rodeo, uh, but you've changed too, I assume. Oh, I think I, I, I have had to change. I, again, the degree to which we would have or I would have tried to hold on to where we used to be uh, would be very catastrophic. So, number one, I've had to change. I am changing. Uh, I don't like to change. Uh, it's hard to change, man. I mean, I'm 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 tired of the camera congregation. Okay, I, I you know I, I stand every week before before a camera, 
And that camera now reaches thousands of people, many more than I would have reached. But it's a different dynamic from my culture, from our from our history, from the very dynamics and the fabric of African-American worship. And so I'm still adjusting to it. Uh, I don't like it. Uh, I'm tired of it. But I'm doing it because at, at some point you say, now, what are your options? So uh, I make the adjustment. Uh, it's been it's been an interesting journey. Uh, it's been a, it's been a good journey. It's been a good journey because we have a team that has made the adjustments that we need need to make. But it has not been easy. Personally, it has not been easily. Uh, uh, my 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 style has been different. Uh, it's uncomfortable. You know, I, I I feel I feel a tension. Here it is. I feel a tension between being Hollywood and being holy. You know, you're in front of camera, lights, camera, action. You know, you got there, and and we have a lot of a lot of entertainment entertainment people in our church, and so they they're 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 kind of pushing me toward you know a, a Hollywood style, a production style, and that kind of thing, and and that's not really me. That's hard for me to do. So so this to, on the other hand, I'm trying to remain. Well, I'm saying this is not just a broadcast. This is a worship experience. And so this tension between remaining the holy gathering of God and being a Hollywood gathering of cameras and lights uh, has been a challenge. Well, you, um, the, the, this show uh, with my, my, my audience always hears me say the same thing about now. Do not forget that this show is, is devoted to conversations about conversations. And, and certainly, Bishop, what you're describing there is a, is a radical shift, not only of your of your mindset, which has affected how you act, how you feel. But this is something I think that I'm hoping, even by you sharing your story there, that, that everyone, in essence, looks in the mirror uh, and says, what change am I going through? Because you hit it right on the button that the real, the most uh, diminishing thing that you could do is insist that it is another time in the past, uh, yeah. letting that go. I, I just, I'm, I'm encouraged. Now I also would rec recommend to anyone. Uh, I watched it this morning. Uh, I, all you got to do is go put in Ken Ulmer in, uh, in Google and up comes on that first line, uh, YouTube, uh, from his Pentecostal Pentecost day, uh, speech. And it's exactly one of these productions. And I watched it. Uh, I watched it all the way through and it is as a speaker, it is not easy to to bring that kind of energy and and emotion to fundamentally an empty room, uh, is the view that I had. But you you really managed to to bring it, and uh, it not was, easy. It was an empty room. Yeah, yeah, it's tough, man. It's tough. Yeah, you know, it I, is. Uh, it I, is. I feel like you know th this is not what I do. You know, and so uh, it, it's a stretch. I, I'll be honest with you. It's a stretch. I understand. I understand. Well. I'm working on it. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, well, Lem, speaking of a stretch, speaking of a uh, of something we would prefer <clears throat> to have be different. Um, there have been the uh, the events. People have probably seen you on the the Today Show with with uh, with our rabbi leader uh, and and been following just the awful, terrible events of the of the past few weeks. And that's where I'd like the rest of our conversation, obviously, to go. If, if COVID wasn't enough, uh, they bring us to this. Um, and as, as people know by looking at my picture, I'm a, I'm a, an, a slightly older white guy. Uh, and it has, been, um, it has been a job of listening over the past 
a few weeks. And I, I'm, I pride myself on listening pretty hard. I'll say that my wife said she married me because I listened too well. Right. Uh, and that, that's a, a little point of pride. My point being, um, that's really the reason I came back to you, uh, was to get your perspective and your encouragement through this time. Uh, and as I told you before we started, uh, I am struck by, in many ways by, um, I was struck the other day in my listening work. I watched the uh, James Baldwin uh, documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. He says the following. And I want to read it twice, not for you, because I already read it to you, but uh, for the listener. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And I, I, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Here is my question for someone who stands where you stand, Bishop. As you hear, uh, as you hear those words, the part that grabs me that I would just so honor, be honored by your reaction to is what is, what do you hear him saying about being faced? That is, what does it mean these days to face it so that it can be changed? Well, you, you, you must understand the, uh, the, the, the life context out of which that, that statement was made. Jimmy Baldwin was probably one of the greatest um, African, not, that's not true, one of the greatest authors, uh, poets, um, uh, writers uh, in, in history of any color. Uh, and yet, uh, if you read more of his books, you'll find the challenges that he went through um, um, as an African-American author, as an African-American uh, playwright, etc. cetera. Uh, and so the things that he went, that he writes about are things that he's lived, that he lived. And so his point was that, that we often are in a culture that wants to, um, in, in one sense, deny, and, and, and in another sense, when I was a little kid, we used to, we used to, we used to, we used to, we used to play. We play like you didn't see that. Play, play, play like that didn't happen. You know, so we kind of put our eyes up and put our hands up over our eyes, and, and we play like we didn't see it. Or we put our hands over our ears and play like we didn't hear it. Or we say, ah, I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. And so Ball, Baldwin comes from the perspective of saying, until we recognize the realities in which we live and the f- realities that we face, nothing will ever be changed. Now, no matter how how massive, no matter how acute we are, and how uh, uh, accurate we are in facing it, some of the things are not even going to change after we face it. But until we face it, it'll never be changed. And so uh, he's writing that piece from perspective of a very gifted African American who faces a system, and that's kind of where I want to go. There's a system, a system, there's a systemic institutionalized mindset toward marginalization. The mindset, there's systemic marginalizing of, of, an inst- of, of the institutions in our culture that, that almost automatically marginalize, minimize the contributions of those who are not of the dominant culture, which would be of, of, of white culture. And so his, all, almost all of his writings has that, that thread through there. Uh, about three weeks ago now, in one of the one of the uh, marches here in Los Angeles, I think it was at the Pan Pacific uh, Park near the Grove, uh, a reporter was interviewing the people who were out there marching, and the reporter uh, uh, talked to a young la- a young lady, young, well, not young, about 30, 40 years old, white lady. And he said, Madam, why are you here? Why are you here? Why, why do you think it's important to be here? And she said, now I get it. He said, what do you mean? He says, I'm here because I get it. 
She said, I've seen these stories before. I've seen the stories about African-American men getting killed before. And you might note that the George, the George Floyd piece came only a month after another guy, uh, Ahmaud, uh, uh, Aubrey, Ahmaud Aubrey, after he was killed. And then the incident in New York. But her point was, I've seen these before, but I've never seen it. And she said, now I get it. Baldwin would say, until you get it, nothing will be changed until you realize that there's a problem here. And again, she was talking about a culture. She's talking about our society. She's talking about a mindset. She's talking about systems that allow or at least turn a blind eye to injustice. I mean, look, look, let's cut to the chase. Okay. Somebody knew that that white cop had 18 complaints against him of the same nature that led him to put his knee on that black man's black black man's neck. Somebody knew it. Somebody knew it. And they winked at it, blinked at it. And the system allowed that man to still be on the street. The system allowed him to still be wearing blue system, allowed him to still be still be on duty. Okay, what he did was wrong, but you can't just stop with that. That's that's where I want to go. I want to stick with this notion, given what happened. uh, I heard you say, uh, uh, in one of your other, in one of your other, uh, the panel that you put on uh, with your friends, uh, I heard you really give credit to the seventeen-year-old girl with the camera, uh, who who caught it and what would have happened without her. My point, though, is, and what I'm, what I'm, what I want to help people think about is what it means to face, and that, and what I mean by that is, the protests, the 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 violence. Uh, that came, um, I would imagine, and I'll leave it to you as a question, what else will make up effective facing, right, of, of dealing, as you said, with this beyond what has happened? Now we're almost a month in, and you know uh, the headlines will change, but what are, are you uh, sharing with people? that's going to keep the, the facing going. What are you, what are you, what are you sharing with, with individuals who, who like me, right? Who, who want to keep doing right by this, by what has happened. I'll, I'll, I'll go all the way out on a limb. I'll go to the deep end of the pool uh, and let's jump all the way into it. I'll make a bold statement. Then I'll, we'll, we'll talk about that for a little while. Racism in America will never change until white people get mad. Say it real slow again. Racism, the institutional racism, systemic racism, structural racism in this country, in this country will never change until white people change it. Now, now, now we back that up. Okay. The thing that makes me so optimistic about what's happening right now, and I got to tell you, man, I am, I am. And I, 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 I went through the Watts riots. I went through Dr. Martin Luther King. I'm, 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 I'm 72 years old. So I've seen a couple of them. I've, I've marched, I've sat in, I've demonstrated when I was a kid, all that kind of stuff. It has never, 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 Drew, it has never, never, never been like this. Never, 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 man, never. And if that the hero is that little black girl who had a phone, none of this. Think about it. None of this would be happening if she had not had a phone. It's not the first black man to get killed. A black man had just been killed about three weeks before that. And there are at least 11, listen, 11 cases of black men or black women 
being killed with something in, in something less than justice as an outcome. But for the first time, the world, not America, the world saw it. Every state in the nation, 50 states responded. 14 nations, man, 14 nations around the world. I, I saw a report. I saw a report and they showed a, they showed a, a, a clip of, of, of a demonstration in Pittsburgh. Then they showed one in Paris. They showed one in Syracuse. Then they showed one in Syria. They showed one in New York and they showed one in London. Never, never, never before, man. Never, never before. And I think that's where Baldwin's, Baldwin's point comes up. People are starting to face this thing. People are starting to say it's real. Listen, I know friends. I know friends, man, who stand flat footed and they are sincere. They mean well. And they say there is no more racism in this nation. We've gotten past that. It's 200 years ago. Uh, uh, you know, these people are you, you, you people ought to just let this thing go. You ought to just get beyond that. What's taking you so long? And my classic line is you don't tell Jews to forget about Holocaust. And the Jews come back and say, never again. We're never going to forget about it. Nope. Because they recognize that there are still remnants and, 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 and carryovers of that mindset, even in America. What's interesting is I had a conversation with a friend of mine, Jewish friend of mine, a couple of days ago. Actually, it was a Zoom like this. And I said, isn't it interesting that some of the people who don't like me don't like you either? So I was talking to Jews. You know, isn't that something? But my point is, it's still around. So when I talk about uh, the idea that things are different this time and go back to what, what Baldwin says, it's in our face. It's in our face. It's in our face. And we've got to deal with it. Now, what, here's my fear. Here, I, fe I fear it, man. I'm afraid. Here's my fear. My fear is that the people who are marching and demonstrating and carrying signs and singing songs and sitting in and laying in and all that, my fear is they're calling for justice, number one, not realizing that justice is a system and it is a system that runs by a clock. And the clock ticks very slowly. That's the first thing. It's going to take some time. So my first concern is that those who are so enthusiastically and sincerely protesting, as, as, as rightly they should, are going to lose the, the, the wind out of their sail, if you will. It's because it's going to take time. The second thing is that I fear that they will march and march and march, but not enough of them will march to the ballot box and change the system address the system. And that's, that's been an issue in my community, my community, my community. Uh, we have people who don't trust the system at all. So people who don't vote in masses don't vote. And so this time, if they don't realize that there's a system, there's a political system, there's a, a, a governmental system that allows it, winks at it, does not respond to it, and that they have an opportunity to impact that system at a ballot box or a ballot vote or whatever it is, if we don't march and march from the streets to the ballot box, march from the streets to the ballot time to, to, to the, the polling place, nothing's going to change on that level. And that's my fear. Well, let me, let me draw you back into this idea of, uh, of conversations. And I want to, uh, this is sort of our last area, um, but this one really struck me. And it, frankly, it was, it was also, I don't want to say reinforced, but I learned a lot from, from watching your conversation with friends. Um, just real quick, you can see this on, uh, obviously, on YouTube and, and all the rest. Uh, Bishop Ulmer has a book out called uh, Walls Can Fall, uh, and, and he gathered some of his uh, pastoral uh, brethren uh, to talk uh, as friends. And it reminded me, uh, Bishop, and it will lead to a question, I promise, 
it reminded me of right after the uh, the 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 unrest began. Oprah uh, pulled together twelve um, folks on a Zoom screen, uh, twelve uh, black folks of of from Stanford and authors and all the rest. And I want to respectfully, um, I'll say confront you, that's not the right word, but point out to you that what struck me about both conversations, yours and Oprah's, as I watched them, was the people on the screen were the, had a bunch to say. The people on your screen had a lot to say. But if not for you and Oprah, nobody was asking any questions, sir. Everybody was talking, but I really wonder how much real listening was going on because listening happens when people and only when people have questions to each other. And what I what I what I want to ask you is as you look at the challenge of white people needing to get mad and all the rest, I I, I ask you in the spirit of the right kind of conversation. What are your questions, right, that are going to help my listeners, uh, the folks who, who you spend your time with? What is the question or questions that need to be answered and need to be listened to? Here's the one I hear. What can I do? What can I do? And these are from well-meaning friends, man. These are from people, the guys who are in that room. You know, we, we've been around the world together. We've been friends for decades. And so, so. What I often hear, and I got an answer for it. My their, their question is, "What can I do?" What can? Oh, I understand. You know, that's really bad. But what can I do? Uh, often implying, "What can just one person do?" Often implying, "Well, what 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 can little old me do?" Okay. Well, first of all, some of those guys are pastoring churches, and they see 15, 20, 30,000 people a week. That's, let's start there. So that's a whole other conversation. So it's not just little old you. It is what are you doing? Uh, uh, when you when you when you face it, recognize that you have a platform to even deal with what you just faced. Let's get past that. Okay, so here's my question. To, to, and, and I've asked this question uh, to my white friends. Oh gosh, over and over and over again in the last three or four weeks. Here it is. What would you do if you could not send your child out into the street? without worrying about him being killed. What would you do if you saw that kind of ungodly demonic action against your son? What would you do if, if, if George, George Floyd was your son or your brother? What would you do? What would you do? How would you respond? And, and that's, that, that, I'm not trying to be facetious about that, but I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying you, you, you have to face the fact that there is a history here that has bred a culture that has bred a mindset. Right. And so let's flip the script. And so when you ask me, what can you do? I'll ask you, what would you do if it was your son or your brother and your friend? Well, maybe you don't have an answer for that, but you ought to deal with that because there's never going to be any change until you deal with that. Until you say that could be my brother or my son or my friend out there. So, so I'm saying it's not so. And, and let, 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 let me go another. Let's go another way. Let's go another way. Another fear that I have is that we want to do without dealing. We want to change without facing it. That's what Baldwin was saying. See, we we, we want to get and so let's get to a solution, solution, solution. 
And I'm saying be careful that you don't that you don't rush to a solution without dealing with the problem that led to the need for the solution. You know, if if, if you if you fall down and you get shot or whatever in, in your arm, you get a you get you get a cut in your arm, you don't just put the bandage on it right away. You got to clean the wound. And so I think that many of us, as as my as my my godson, uh, uh, Dr. Brian Rich says, many of us will be are in danger of seeking a solution that will merely sanitize our consciences. Again, I don't want to say it too fast. He said, be careful that we don't seek a solution merely to sanitize our consciences. Ah, we did something. Ah, we got a plan. Ah, we passed a bill. Ah, we changed rules. Yeah. And so I'm saying, I'm saying for there to be long-standing and, and, and long-term change, let's wrestle with the hard stuff. Let's wrestle with how did we get there. Let's wrestle with, you know, uh, 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 how, mul- how multi-dimensioned is this issue? I did ask these guys, uh, some of those guys who have some black members in their, in their congregation, you know, you, okay, so you want these black guys and these black women, men and women to come to your church or say, but ask yourself, you say they've been there. Oh, we've been, we've been multiracial for you know, 15, 20 years. None of your leaders are, are black. None of the people who sit in the room that makes the decision and the power, none of the power structure is black. None of the top tiered leadership is black. D- deal with that before you deal with waving a flag about how many black members you have. No, no. But but how empowered are they? How recognized are they beyond the snapshots and the photos for your mission statement and your mission books? And look how look how mixed we are. No, no. And so those are some of the tough questions. Yeah, that's uh, and that's, as you know, just scratching the surface, because once you point out the problem is you so artic- you know, got right to the heart of it. When you point out to one of your uh, brethren that they don't have um, uh, black uh, black you know, uh, professionals, or yeah. doesn't even have to be that; it could be anyone yeah. involved in their church at any high level. Yeah. Guess what they need to then do? To your point about about getting into the wound, when it comes to a conversation, the conversation that that I would force them to have is: don't just put. Uh, a black uh, person on your board, that doesn't do it. You have to ask the question and listen to the uncomfortable answer of why have we been so resistant and re- and wrestle with that through, as, as I've said, through real listening. Listening only really matters, by the way, you know this, listening only really matters when you get uncomfortable. Yes, M- many of my friends, have merely, they have an extension of the culture and the context of slavery. Watch this. Because during slavery, white people would let black people come to church. Mm. They sit in the balcony or they sit outside or they sit in the back. In other words, in other words, they were able to say, yeah, our, you know, uh, my, 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 my Negroes, my, my Negroes come to church every Sunday. Now, now the fact that they came and the only sermon they heard was "slaves obey your master." That's a whole other conversation. But, but the point was that they would they, they they would often boast about the fact that that their negros their negros uh, worship with us on Sunday. But it was obviously marginal marginalized and not empowered. And so many of my friends have an extension of that. They, you know, they're still they're still there, but they have no voice. They have no say. They have no input. They have no influence at all. And that's a painful thing to look at, man. Yep. Because because at some point you realize, wow, maybe we ain't come as far as we thought we had. Not as long as these things continue to happen. That is for sure. 
Well, uh, Bishop, I, 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 I've gone over the time uh, that, that I asked you for, so thank you for that. Um, thank thank you. you for continuing to help folks do the facing that Mr. Baldwin talked about, because that's at the heart, as we have, as we have uh, you know, violently agreed, as they say, uh, that's where the real work is. Well, so, I, 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 I don't do well at this, but, but this is very passionate. Uh, my new book is called Walls Can Fall. Let me tell you the story behind it. No, there's a story behind that book, and then I'm out of here. Please, no, take your time. No one would publish this book. No one would publish this book. I, I, three, three publishers told me out in front, we can't sell a book on race. Nobody wants to buy a book on race. And two of those publishers I had done books with before. And one of the guys, one of the guys who was honest enough, honest enough, he said, I'm going to tell you why. I said, I don't understand. I'll tell you why. He says, nobody wants to buy a book on race. He says, because all of my liberal friends are going to remain liberal and all of my racist friends are going to remain racist and nobody wants to hear the other side. He said, I can't publish this book. And so this book, this book is called Walls Can Fall, Race, Reconciliation and Righteousness in a divided world. It is probably the most painful book I've ever written. The opening line of this book is, I am a recovering racist. The first line in this book is, I'm a recovering racist. And I go on to deal from a, from, from a personal perspective, from a theological perspective, from a biblical perspective, from a scholarly perspective, you know, this whole issue of race and reconciliation. Uh, and I, I want to encourage your, 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 your listeners to, to get that book. Walls can fall, get it, uh, and uh, it'll bless you. Well, thank you. Uh, please, folks, uh, there's all sorts of, as, as I'm sure the bishop would say, great reading out there. And I proudly recommend this book, uh, uh, having taken a little bit of a look at it uh, as part of that, that important collection of thought out there uh, today. And, and thank you, Bishop, for joining us.